to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Uh, it is my great pleasure and honor today to welcome Michelle Norris, who I think with this crowd clearly needs no introduction, but she is one of those uh, voices on NPR that has over time become one of the trusted and um, distinctive ones. She's been virtually, I guess, everything at NPR at one time or another, all things considered, morning edition, doing profiles, doing pieces, doing interviews, and so forth. One of the things that she has made a particular interest is the race card project, something that I think you named, didn't you? Uh, and it is that that she is going to be particularly focusing on today. She is a distinguished journalist, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you, Michelle, to the Kennedy School of Insurance Center. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. Thank you all for... I apologize in advance to those of you who have to look at the back of my head. I'll try to turn around um, from time to time. It is it is such an honor uh, to be here. My um, daughter joked with me today. We were just talking about my daughter. She's 14, and she um, has a very big personality. And, and somehow she heard about this video that had been going around at Harvard, and she said, you get to go to Harvard, and you get to say today, I, too, am Harvard. <laughs> so I'll own that for today. Mm. Um, oh, just one moment. Janelle, do we have a hashtag for today? Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could do race card, maybe? Let's do Harvard race card. Race card. Okay. Or Shorenstein race, race card. Is that too long? I'm sorry? Maybe just, Harvard, just race Harvard card. Harvard race card? Or just okay. race card. Sure. Yeah. Hashtag race card. Okay. Okay. You're um, on. So I'm, I'm glad to see such a um, large and robust crowd here today, and I'm going to talk a little bit, but I hope very much that this will be a conversation. So I'll tell you a little bit about how the Race Card Project um, came about and what happened when I essentially put a basket on the table and said, let's talk about race. Um, I, at the time, was hosting a show called All Things Considered, and you're going to have to just uh, allow me to give a shout out to Allie McAdam, who's here. Allison McAdam is spending a year at Harvard. She's a producer for all things considered. And um, and it was really, we haven't seen each other for a while while she's been on her Neiman Fellowship. It's good to see her. But I was working and I published um, a book called The Grace of Silence. I wrote a book about my family's racial legacy. It was, um, I guess what I'm going to talk to you about is left turns. Because the book that I wrote was a bit of a surprise. Uh, it's called The Grace of Silence, a family memoir. For me, it could well be called an accidental family memoir. It was not the book I set out to write. I was trying to write a book about how Americans talk and think about race at an interesting moment. It started in the run-up to the 2008 election, and, and you recall that around that time there was that word that was everywhere, post-racial. Do you remember that? Do we even know what that word meant? <laughs> you know, but it was everywhere. And, 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 and I've actually done some research on this. It, it was used maybe a dozen times prior to 2006. And then suddenly there's this period in between 2006, late 2006, early 2007, where it is everywhere. Words don't grow that way. They just don't enter the American vernacular that way. Now, I'm not, 
I'm not espousing some sort of conspiracy theory that someone salted the conversation with this word to perhaps allow us to accept what looked to be happening, or maybe we were all reaching for a convenient understanding of what was happening politically, but that word was everywhere, and I thought it was kind of fuzzy. Like, anyone care to venture? I'm on a college campus, so I can <laughs> ask a question with a reasonable, reasonable expectation that I might get an answer. Uh, does anyone remember what that word might have meant, post-racial? Anyone? Did it have to do with Obama? Well, that's generally we what were, it was. That was past black and white. That we were past black and white. A new paradigm. For a new paradigm. The way we <coughs> race didn't matter as much. Right. The race issue was resolved. Mm -hmm. And how did that turn out? <laughs> Beautifully. <laughs> it's a wonderful Wright. thing that it's all been resolved. It I came think up a little it. with Reverend Ryder. Yes, okay. yes. And when I first heard that, I thought, post-racial, try most racial. <laughs> if a family of color moves into the White House, it will not be over. In fact, we're going to enter a period where the conversation about race will deepen and probably become more animated. And I published this book about my family shortly after that and about my family's rather complex racial legacy. I discovered in doing research that my father had been shot by a police officer in Birmingham, Alabama, where he was raised and never told anyone about it in my family. I didn't know about it. My sisters didn't know about it. My mother did not know about it. He kept it to himself. All of his brothers knew. One of his brothers was with him when it happened. They kept it to themselves. My mother was also keeping a secret. My mother never talked about the work her mother did as a traveling Aunt Jemima, dressing up in a hoop skirt and headscarf and doing pancake demonstrations. And not the Aunt Jemima that you all see on your pancake box today, not the one who has pearl earrings and looks like she gets her hair done every Tuesday with a little wet set and plays canasta and shops at Dillard's. This is a woman who was dressed up like a slave woman, my grandmother. My, my mother never talked about that. So I knew when I wrote this book I would be going out into America convening a conversation about race in college campuses, at bookstores, wherever I went. And I was afraid that no one would want to talk about race. I was afraid that this was this toxic subject. So I quite literally decided to play the race card. I went to a local Kinko's in my neighborhood. If you're from Washington, D.C., it's the one near the Red Door Salon on Wisconsin Avenue. <laughs> and I printed up 200 of these cards. And my idea was to ask people to participate in the conversation. When you walked in the room, you were probably handed a card. To think about this big word race. And then imagine whatever came in your head. Don't think too much, but just whatever popped into your head. Your thoughts, your observations, your experiences. And then to take that and condense it to just six words. So small word, big topic, but then let's distill it down to just six words. Your thoughts, six words. I distributed these and hoped that they would come back. People thought I was crazy. My, if you recall, people at ATC were like, what is she doing? That's so strange. My husband thought it was crazy that I was sending, spending our money on postcards. My parents were postal workers. My father's gone. My mother's still living. And she appreciated that I was trying to support the US Postal Service. <laughs> <laughs> so she was happy. But I just waited to see what happened. And surprisingly, of the 200 that I first printed, about 30% came back to me. And if you know anything about direct mail, that is a really good yield. And so I printed more, and I printed more. I got my publisher to print more. And they kept coming back. And in the beginning, um, I, I was not smart about this at the beginning. I didn't ask people to, in the first batch, give me their name. So when I printed up the next batch, I asked people to give me their name and location. But most people didn't. They would submit them under anonymous. 
And in the beginning, most of the submissions were, I, I call them rainbows and bunnies. Um, only one race, the human race. I don't see color, I see people. They were very aspirational. They had a sort of kumbaya feel, feel to them. And then something happened in that first year, and I'm not sure if it was modeling, I'm not sure if people got comfortable, I'm not sure if it was what was going on in the news cycle, but suddenly the conversations got deep. And people started to share things that it would be hard to imagine hearing in front of a hot microphone in Studio 2A at All Things Considered or in CNN or if you were having a dinner party. It would be hard to imagine someone saying out loud, sometimes I'm angry at white people. Not all Mexicans can do landscaping. Angry, I'm unforgiven because I'm white. Embarrassed, I'm frightened of black boys. Asian people never go on welfare. My grandfather would hate my grandchildren. Ruthless white guilt, excuse me, relentless white guilt defines my life. And when this conversation got deeper, you would think that people would embrace this cloak of anonymity, but that didn't happen. At that point, more people started to sign their names and tell me where they were from. And I created a website because I thought this was so interesting that I wanted to share it. I wanted people to be able to see some of what was coming in the inbox uh, because it was so interesting. So this is the website um, that I created. And the idea was that I, I originally, it wasn't quite this sophisticated when I started. I'm a journalist. Um, I have had to develop several skill sets that were not natural to me. I had to learn how to run a website, how to do computer coding, how to you know do a number of things. And I put together a team of people that helped me put this together. And you'll see that people would send in their name and tell me where they were from. And I, I, I on the website, um, I allowed people to submit via the website. So now the, I still get cards <coughs> in the inbox every week, but the vast majority of submissions come in either through Twitter and now with the hashtag Harvard race card um, or via the website. And on the website, when you click on the submission form, I added a simple question. Anything else? So along with your six words, anything else, and then people started to send in stories, and then they started to send in pictures and drawings and artifacts, and the idea was to create a place where you could learn about someone else, someone else's experience, and contribute to that, and if you scroll down a little bit, things got interesting, but they also got a bit uncomfortable. So you see what happens when you ask people to participate in this conversation. Look at those three responses. The first one move back to the Congo with the other monkeys. Now let's remember what his six words were. Can you go back up again? Just scroll back up. His six words were African American, no. Black, Hispanic, no. Stolen African, yes. So he's saying that he, that's how he wants to identify himself as someone who landed in this country because he was snatched from his homeland and carried here to America. And so you see when people respond, the first person I believe called him a monkey. Yes, move back to the Congo with other monkeys. Brittany Stevenson says, I'm sorry. And Hanley basically raises a fist and says, go back and reclaim it, brother. And that's the, the, the kinds of conversation you find yourself in. And at that point, I had to decide, ooh, am I ready for this? Do I have the stomach for this? And I decided that I had to push forward because what was coming in the inbox was so interesting and that if I was trying to capture America's honest conversation about race, then it was going to take us to uncomfortable places. So I tell people, if you go to the website, you will most certainly see something that will make you uncomfortable. You will see something that might make you nod in agreement. You will see something that might make you want to spit. 
but you will be enriched by the experience because you will understand life as lived by someone else. What it wound up doing was creating a way for me to get into conversations that I would probably never be privy to. What it has captured is a sort of private rumination on race, unlike anything that we ever captured in Studio 2A, because people are telling their own stories and revealing themselves and doing it in their own space. So sitting in front of the glow of the computer screen and um, telling us a little bit about their life. In some cases, the themes that surfaced were predictable. Slavery, for instance. And if we put slavery in the search field, you'll see that I received many, many stories about slavery. If you listen um, to Morning Edition or All Things Considered, and I assume that a lot of you are prisoners of public radio. <laughs> so a lot of the students probably grew up force-fed a steady diet of, of NPR in the car and in the kitchen. Well, if you listen to Morning Edition, we now have started putting race card project segments on the air. And um, there's one from Henry Goines that we aired recently. It was Found My Ancestors in Grief Too. He's a genealogist. And he was researching his North Car Carolina family about 10 years ago. And he realized that they lived in a place called Sourtown, S-A-U-E-R-T-O-W-N. But to him it sounded like sorrow town. And he realized that the overseer was someone named probably Greff, because it was spelled G-R-E-I-F. But when he saw it, what he saw was grief. And his six words were, found my ancestors in grief too. And the experience that he had, um, he knew it would be difficult to find this, but he didn't understand how difficult it would be to actually look at a ledger and see that his ancestors had dollar figures next to them. And see that they were on, an, on a ledger next to farm implements and farm animals. And there was really no distinction. And so as a genealogist, he had to keep digging and digging and digging until he found something that felt like oxygen. And he finally found that when he found an ancestor whose name was John, who was in Virginia, who was a free man. And he found that in the census in Virginia, where all free people had to go every year, where they could be examined naked. So you could see all of the markings on their body because they decided that the free population was somewhat scary, so they had to make sure that they actually chronicled them in great detail. And when he found someone who had found freedom, that made him feel like he was finally above air. So that's one side of the story. But when you put in the word slavery, all kinds of things come up. Greg Camp from Fayetteville, Arkansas says, don't blame me for the past. Carol Woods says, I apologize to Sue's family. And I included that even though it was only five words. <laughs> and I, just an aside, people get slick when you ask them to send in six words. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they, like the hyphenations that you get, like seven words hyphenated. <laughs> but in this case, the story was so interesting that I included it. Sue worked for Carol Woods' his grandmother. Carol is from a place called Sequim, Washington. I'm not familiar with that. Maybe some of you are. And um, she said that Sue worked for her grandmother without pay in a place called Sumter, South Carolina, from her teenage years in the early, 20, in the early 20th century until she was quite elderly. Then she was given back to her relatives, and given back is in parentheses. Um, she says that her grandmother claimed Sue's family gave her to the family initially. She was a member of the African-American family that were my family slaves. So even after freedom, she was still given to the family. And she said she met her only once. 
She described Sue as being so bow-legged, it seemed to me that she was walking on the sides of her feet. My grandmother explained that she was a box baby. This meant her parents sat her on a box while they picked cotton. She grew and the box did not, so her legs bent. She says that her grandmother gave her the impression that Sue was happy working for her. The time that I met her, when my grandmother took Sue some old clothes, she showed no warmth, though instead I saw dignity and good manners, no warmth or happiness. Much later, my aunt told me, you know, Mabel, my grandmother, wasn't very nice to Sue. I think Sue's family was Peters or Peterson. I wish I could apologize to her relatives. We're going to try to help her find her relatives and maybe they can finally have some some kind of conversation and maybe you'll hear that on the radio adoption is another example of a, a topic that was surprising to me I when you think about race you think about certain things the word race usually makes us think about black and white America and sort of a civil rights construct one of the biggest lessons for me in this project is that our conversation about race has been too pinched and that's true, I, 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 my mea culpa, that's true of me in, in my position on the radio. When we think about race, when something happens, there's this part of the Rolodex that we always reach for, and you sort of know who you're going to hear on the radio or see on television. They've, you, you expect to hear Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton. We often talk about it in terms of 1960, 1968, but America is so changed. Look around the room. This is race in America. It's much more multi-hued than the conversation that we usually attach to that word. And this, this crazy project has helped me understand that. For instance, when I think about race in America, I didn't think perhaps enough about adoption. It's one of the biggest topics, one of the biggest themes in the race card project. Biracial America is another one. But adoption, there's so many stories that have come in about adoption. One of them we put on the radio, and you may have heard it, black babies cost less to adopt. I remember the day that one arrived. I remember when I went to the inbox to find that. Black babies cost less to adopt. What happened when you put that on? Well, we weren't able to, f to, the woman who sent in the six words, her name was Michelle. She lives in Covington, Louisiana. And she said, I have her original card here, we decided to adopt a child years ago. We're not infertile, but felt like it was a great way to add to our family while loving someone who needed us. Our research showed us that African-American children, especially boys, are the least adoptable in our country. We decided to adopt via a nonprofit agency a child of any race. In the U.S., whether you use a nonprofit or a for-profit agency, black children are cheaper. It's hard to even say that. I have read the reasoning behind this, but I really don't care to repeat the rationalizations here. My son was cheaper than if he had been white. How will he feel if he ever finds out about that? She decided not to talk to us because she was concerned about her son, but we had so many that came in under this theme that we were able to find others to talk to us. And the woman that we put on the air was a woman named Karen Lands Ward. She lives in Minnesota. She's adopted two children. And we did research on this, and it's correct. Now, it's not that the children cost less, because you don't buy children through adoption, but there are fees attached to the adoption of children. And that fee structure varies state by state. There are no federal laws um, regarding adoption, but their fee structures are usually determined by the state and the adoption system in a state. But in every state, the fee structure is such that it is less to adopt a child. It, it costs, it winds up costing less. The, the, the cost associate, associated with adopting a child of color is less than for adopting a white child. And there are gradations in that. So if you look at the fee structure, and we were able to find this through several agencies, 
white children cost the most, and the fee structure is usually around $35,000. And black children, black boys, cost the least, and it's usually $17,000, $18,000. But in between that, biracial children, light-skinned children, dark-skinned children, Asian children, Latino children. You mean they're, they're categorized? Well, the they don't structure? categorize them, but you get a list of children that are available. Mm -hmm. And next to them, the fee structure is usually associated with that. So there are several, no one's comfortable with this. And it is something that, and I wouldn't have known this. This is not something I had, I would have ever thought about, probably, if it hadn't landed in the, in the transom through the inbox. But what it is, is in, in many cases, it's done for altruistic reasons. There are so many children of color that need homes that they, they, don't, they don't like the word discount, but they reduce the fee for the best of reasons, to hope that, in the hope that families that might otherwise be locked out of the adoption process could actually participate in adoption. So it is a, it, it's done for altruistic reasons, but everyone also acknowledges that the laws of supply and demand are also at work. And so some states are combating this with a fee structure that's based on family income as opposed to the color of the child. Um, there's not a lot of research in this area. It's something that I hope to be able to dig into a little bit more, but it's an example of how this experiment has taken um, us to interesting places. But we've also heard about what it's like for gay parents to adopt children and their experience in America. Um, for children who have last names that sound like they hail from Poland or Czechoslovakia or um, the Russian tundra, and yet their features say that they're Asian or that they're African-American or that they're Latino. And the experience of um, going to school and doing something that many of you as students probably remember when you had to go to Target and get that folding board. I have 13-year-old, 14-year-old woman there going through this right now where you have to do Heritage Day. Remember Heritage Day? Where you had to interview your relatives, what kind of food did you eat, what kind of songs did you sing? Well, that gets kind of complicated if your heritage is not necessarily linear. And so, you know, I just, another thing, I hadn't thought about that. I think about that now because of this project. Um, expectations, I bet they're good at math. A man has adopted two Asian daughters and everywhere he goes, people say to him, I bet they're good at math. This bothers him because they make a certain assumption. It turns out they are good at math. <laughs> but he wonders why would they make that assumption? Why don't they make the same assumption about his daughter who's blonde haired? She's good at math too, but no one assumes that about her. If you put in the word um, border, um, another word that comes up commonly. I don't get so many border stories from Massachusetts, not surprisingly. <laughs> I get them primarily from um, the southern United States, although there are interesting things that happen around the northern border in Canada, where people speak in Maine, for instance, in northern Maine, where there are a lot of people speak French, and where the students um, don't go to school. Actually, they go to school, and they have the almost the month of September off because they pick potatoes. And um, there is a tradition of um, uh, families who are uh, French-speaking families who actually are the potato pickers. And to, so to be called a potato picker in Maine is a derogatory term. I would have never known that if not for this project. Um, if you, the project has taught me a lot about people who are not, you don't automatically think of um, in conversations about race. The word invisible comes up a lot. Um, the invisible Arab until 9-12. 
someone who felt that their <coughs> heritage was not much noticed until after 9-11. And she says, I noticed how my university applications changed in the wake of 9-11, how there was all of a sudden a magical radio button for being Arab. I had previously been invisible, moderately enjoying white privilege until 9-11. In fact, if you're Arab on the census, you usually check white because there's not a separate form for that. I was no longer white after 9-11, which was a slight sigh of relief because I was so proud of my heritage. Now I feel it is important to relish in no longer being invisible so that I can counteract the waves of hatred aimed at Arabs in the wake of 9-11. So what do I do with all this? Well, the answer for me is the same answer, I guess, for many of the students. What do you do with your education? In this case, this has been an education for me as a journalist and as a human being, and I hope that I'm able to do something of use with all of this. It has been an education that has been as valuable to me as anything I've learned in a newsroom, anything, no disrespect to any of my college professors, but on the prickly topic of race, this has been more valuable <coughs> than anything I've learned in a classroom or a courtroom um, because it takes me into private rooms, private spaces. It allows me to see something that was unavailable um, to my eyes or to my ears previous to this. And if I had to do it again, I'm not sure I would even call it the race card project because so many of the stories that come in, I've shared with you stories that are about race and cultural heritage and skin color, but many of them aren't about skin color. In fact, in the beginning, I called it the race card project and I wondered, you know, Latinos are so underrepresented. And then someone said, well, you're calling it the race card project. That doesn't, that doesn't, race doesn't affect us, you know, that's not, so I, when I talked about it, I couldn't change the name, I'd already printed like a million of these cards, so I just would say the car, the race card project is about race and cultural identity, words count, suddenly I started to get many more submissions from people who were Latino or who, who were not raced in the traditional sense, it broadened the conversation in some way, but a lot of them that come in have nothing to do with skin color. A lot of them have to do with immigrant experiences, what it was like to be German after World Wars I or II, what it was like to be um, German in a certain part of Pennsylvania where the word was, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. What it was like to, um, what it's like to be a member of the military, trying to wake, make your way back into society, feeling like you are a separate cohort, that you hear something differently, you see something differently. We have a lot of submissions from, um, from the military, from redheads. I have dozens of submissions from redheads who talk about the experience of being redheaded. Didn't get that job because of my perceived temperament. I just wouldn't have thought about that. Um, not in the, with the depth that I think about it now. Uh, women who say that they get approached by men who say all kinds of things that I'm not gonna repeat at this table because they're redheaded, because they have red hair. I just, you know, would not have thought about that. Um, a lot of stories of regret. People of one generation who who wished they would have stood up and sat next to someone in class when their schools first integrated. That they wished they would have said something and this is a way for them to actually say something. So I hope that in the end this sparks conversations. I hope that it captures conversation. I do liken it to the basket on the table where people drop in um, their stories. And uh, Arthur Mitchell once said, the dancer Arthur Mitchell once said, that the dance comes from the people, so the dance has to be given back to the people. And that's the way I see this project, that these are, uh, they're stories that, that come from individuals and I'd like to be able to share them with other people. We have submissions from all 50 states, from more than 55 countries, 
if you scroll through, you see you see places that um, are familiar to you, Seattle, Chicago, Houston, but there are also places I've never heard of. I have more than a dozen submissions from Katy, Texas. Has anyone in the room been to Katy, Texas? What is going on in Katy, Texas? <laughs> no. I, I just, I'd never there even two heard. two people sitting next to each other. <laughs> Somebody behind you. What is, what is it about, is there an air, a military base there or something? I don't know, I was about five. You know, Janelle, I just, do you know? What's there? The is it? <laughs> well, maybe someone has you know? secretly handing out race I mean, cards a, along with receipts or something. Yeah, so, so a lot of people who work in Houston live in Katy. Live in Katy. Well, I have, you know, I just hadn't heard of Katy. Seguin, Texas is another place. You know, I have a lot of submissions from Seguin. Um, and I hope that, you know, I, I always tell people that the race car project is not a panacea. It's not going to solve anything. It's not going to heal race relations. Um, in fact, it might make you feel uncomfortable, but what it does is provide a place where you can learn something about life as lived from someone by someone else. So often when we try to have a conversation about race, the emphasis is put, is put on what is said as opposed to what is heard. Um, the emphasis is placed on conversation. I'm so afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. What do I have to say? Here the conversation is about listening. And that perhaps has been the biggest lesson for me is I'm a communicator. I make a living standing behind microphones. But the most important thing I do is not, it's not what I say. The most important thing I do is listen. And the most important thing I can do is to provide a space where people can listen to someone else. And that's really important right now. Um, I generally talk about what I know instead of what I think, but I'm gonna share, without stepping on a, a, a soapbox, a little bit about what I think about this moment. We live in a moment right now where your media diet can so easily consist primarily of the things that affirm or confirm what you already believe. It's very easy to do that. You can pick and choose and never meet an opinion that really will make, confront you know, you with something that, well, wait, let me think about someone else. Let me not nod at the radio in agreement. Let me, let me try to listen to someone else and what they might be thinking. And so I felt um, ever more called to push forward with this, uh, despite the fact that it's quite, running a website is not easy. Um, and doing it while you're juggling a thousand things is not easy. But this has become one of the, the probably the most important part of my professional portfolio. And, and so I, I press on with this. Um, I'm honored that you came here to listen to me, but I really do want to listen to all of okay. you. So uh, we'll, we'll open it to questions. I want to ask a, a, a couple of questions first, if I may. <clears throat> first of all, what have you, because of this, concluded about race relations in our country? That, or race in our country, I should say. Well, perhaps. that's a, you know, there, there, there are so many. I mean, it's such a big topic. Um, it's not over. That's the biggest one. You know, despite all the talk about moving into a post-racial society, we are not even close. But I also don't think we should ever get there. I hope in my lifetime that we become, or if not in my lifetime, in my children's or their children's lifetime, we become a post-racist society. That would be nice. But a post-racial society is to aspire to something that, let's just think about that, because race is part of who we are. It's part of the fabric of this country. And we run away, we run away from something that is central to who we are, and that actually makes us, if not exceptional, at least special. I mean, there are, there are a lot of places that are, are, are far more homogenous than we are in their makeup. And people come to America in part because they want to experience this tapestry. And I realized this when I was doing work this summer. 
on the March on Washington, looking back on the, the 50 years since, um, I went back and looked at the coverage. And the foreign coverage and the domestic coverage was very different. And among the domestic news outlets, particularly the paper newspapers, they were all expecting violence. And when that didn't happen, um, the newspapers didn't really didn't give much notice to the march. It was it's very interesting. In fact, the Washington Post did a whole mea culpa this summer, saying, "Sorry, we missed the march that happened three blocks from us." I mean, literally, they they ran this, and it was really interesting because they had sent people out to capture the violence, and when that didn't happen, they were like, "Oh, hold on." They they failed to notice that fifty thousand people, you know, showed up. The um, the television press covered it because the pictures were so sensational. So they captured the scope of it. And in fact, uh, they, they were supposed to run um, soap operas that day and decided to just stick with the program. WGBH, which has one of the best archival um, archives of the coverage, ran, they just, they had the whole thing all day long. They had, I think it was 16 hours, and it's treasured because it's one of the few, one of the few news outlets that actually gavel to gavel carried the whole thing. The foreign press, one of the things that was noted in almost all of those stories was the diversity of the crowd. This was the first time, it was the first large protest on the mall, and it was the first time that any kind of protest was integrated to that degree. And people overseas were fascinated by that. And that struck me, because they looked at that and they saw, all saw it as not a novelty, but how wonderful America is, that they have this great sea of humanity. And from that moment in 1963 to this moment today, we look at that diversity and we see it as this thing that this millstone that we have to have annual diversity training sessions that you have to go to on the third Tuesday of the month of March, you know, because it's required, um, you know, for legal reasons or something like that, as opposed to being one of the strengths in this country. Do you have a sense that that's generational? Do you think that it's going to be different for your daughter than it was for you? It already is different, and I bet it's different for a lot of the young people here, I do spend a lot of time on college campuses, and one of the things that I've gleaned from that, however, is that we maybe have told the Benetton generation that it was supposed to be easy for them. I think there was this expectation that the next generation would lead us to maybe that post-racial nirvana, that it would they would figure it out. And when they butt their head up against the wall and realize, ooh, this is, this is still kind of, this is still a little bit difficult there's a sense of letdown. I mean, a lot of students feel that they have let down previous generations because it was supposed to be so much easier for them, and there still are expectations that are layered on them based on the color of their skin or their accent, um, based on all kinds of things. And so one of the conclusions I take from that, and I, I really think about it when I talk about race, and I spend a lot of time talking about race, is... Um, I try not to repeat this idea that race is difficult to talk about, that race is this awful, toxic thing, because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell people, it's like, you know, the restaurant that says the food is good, and the food's kind of mediocre, because the, the, the sign out front said the food is good. You, you, it tastes better, just because they said it, you know, it said it does. I'm, I'm not sure that you can pull the wool over people's eyes entirely, but if you explain to people that the conversation about race might be difficult, but, or and, or yet, if there's some sort of conjunction that you can add to that so that there's still an invitation to march forward and, and go forward with courage, I think we can do that next Well, as someone who is also, you know, a close observer of the political situation in this country, 
do you see a polarity on race that is built into this Democrat, Republican, uh, you know, high partisan, difficult uh, uh, relations where immigration has become a kind of a <coughs> code word for race? Mm -hmm. It would seem to me anyway. Well, there are a lot of code words. I mean, in politics, you really have to have a careful ear to understand what people are saying. Um, because you take people at their word, you know, it's not about race, so you have to take them at their word, but you judge people on their actions. Um, I mean, a good example of that is the animus toward the current sitting president. And this is something I, I'll just, I assume someone's going to ask me this, so I'll just get there ahead of you. Go ahead. Because <laughs> I get asked this all the time. Is the, you know, is the, is the resistance to this president has to have something to do with race? Well, many of the people who are most resistant, including several members of the Tea Party, say it has nothing to do with race. So I'm not going to stand and say someone is a liar. Because I take you, I, I don't know what's in your heart. I'm never going to know what's in your heart. So I will take you at your word. There are all kinds of things that are going on now, and it's easy to say that it's only about race, but there are lots of things that are very complicated right now. This happened, the, 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 the America's first African-American president, first black family living in the White House, happened at a time where America sort of mid-turn, mid-turn, not turn, turn, in terms of demographics. America, the demographics of this country are changing rapidly. If not in my lifetime, definitely in all of yours, America will become a majority-minority country, at which point we need new terms because majority-minority sounds like jumbo shrimp. I mean, we, just, we, need to, you know, we need to kind of figure that out, you know, at that point. Um, but also, this happened at a moment of great economic tumult. So there are a lot of people who feel like they can't, their feet don't touch the floor. And even if their feet do touch the floor, the floor is moving. Um, there, you have a generation that cannot expect to live as comfortably as their parents. Uh, you had the highest foreclosure rates that we have ever seen, and put your seatbelts on because in 2014, the second wave of arms are going to hit, and we're probably going to see a lot of housing displacement again that most people don't talk about or most people aren't aware of. But the second big wave of those zero, you know, those zero down funky mortgages, they come due this year. So you're, you're going to see another wave of economic tumult. So some of it has to do with that. Um, if you look at the research that was done early on, on um, on indices of achievement and poverty uh, among communities of color, many of those same things now apply to rural white populations. So when you talk about privilege, you have people saying, wait a minute, why, I, I can't pay my rent on Monday. I'm privileged? So this is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very complicated. So you don't know if it's about race, but at the same time, if a black family moved into the White House in this country with its history, and race wasn't part of the political calculus, it would be a miracle on the order of loaves and fishes. <laughs> How important do you think it is that not only was a black man elected president, but re-elected president? I think the re-election was more important than the election. The real, and um, I mean, if you look at, you know, politically and what happened in the first year, the re-election will, I predict, be studied as much as the election for what it meant in terms of voter turnout, um, for what it meant in terms of political muscle and mastery of message and, um, and what it means for both parties. I mean, in the, in the re-election, if you go back, you can see things when you look backward that you don't see going forward. And one of the most interesting stories written after the election um, was 
a reporter in Tampa, and I, I, I wish I could remember the lead, because as a journalist, every so often you read someone's lead, and you're like, ooh, that was good. <laughs> I wish I had written that. But it, it, it basically explained that the seeds of defeat were apparent to the candidates everywhere they went, and that they were speaking to audiences that were not diverse, and that the political calculus in this country in, is such that in order to get the numbers that you need, um, you need to have a more diverse base. And in order to, to if, if you're going to have a base that is not diverse, the pressures on you to turn out basically, you have to turn out everybody. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to get that kind of turnout, particularly in a, in a, you know, a time where there is economic turmoil. Let me open this up to students, if I may. Those of you who are students get priority. If you'll just indicate, raise your hand, um, and you're welcome. For, Oh, yes. Hi, good evening. I'm Katie Blaisdell, and I'm delighted to have you here, so thank you for having this conversation with us. Um, I wonder if you have thought at all about um, sort of the opacity of the radio in terms of people are less likely to know your race than if you were a television reporter, and how that changes the conversation you're able to have with folks. You know, I, I do think about that, and uh, my daughter, <laughs> uh, has pointed out to me that if you go to, if you put my name in Google, the, if it's not, the, now the first thing that comes up is, I think it's NPR, the race card project, and ethnicity. So people would hear me on the radio, I'm from <coughs> Minnesota, my father's from Birmingham, um, I fully admit to code switching, which is my voice sounds differently depending on where I am, so if I'm in Birmingham, I can be as country as a street of sandwich and, and, you know, sound like I'm from Birmingham. Or, if I'm in Minnesota, I, oh yeah, I dropped my old. <laughs> and I sound like I'm from Minnesota. Um, and on the radio, I, you know, apparently don't sound ethnic because a lot of people can't quite figure out who I am or what I am. And maybe that has contributed to that. But at this point, I think most people, having written a book and run something called the Race Car Project, most people know. I, if there's anything about the radio that may have contributed to um, the opacity of this or the accessibility, it might be the intimacy of radio. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to radio, you know that radio is a very intimate medium. It washes over you in very private spaces. You're in your car, you're in your kitchen, you're in your shower, and we talk to you when you've got cold cream on your face and, you know, and you're brushing your teeth. And so there's this, and I know that because I was a prisoner of public radio. I grew up listening to public radio. I, long before I went to work in public radio, was a devoted listener and felt a certain communion with the people that, that became my colleagues. I mean, the first time I saw Sylvia Pajoli in the hall, I was like, I, you're Sylvia Pajoli! <laughs> so I think that, that that may have contributed to it, that people feel like they, they know us in some way. Other questions? Yes. Hi, I'm Ruthu. Um, I was curious, given that a lot of what you're talking about is understanding other people's lived experiences, how, when you see something happen in a moment, how is your conversation or your interaction with that moment changed? If you see something that's discriminatory or harassment, or you hear a comment, how do you handle that differently? Um, as a person, I handle it in one way, and as a journalist, I handle it another way. So as a person, one of the things that it's taught me is the importance of keeping the conversation alive. Um, and I'm glad you asked this, because I think it is an perhaps a, a, an important lesson for young people in particular. So when someone says something to you and they step on your horns, you know, with, a, with a, a ridiculous question or something that strikes you as ridiculous but is earnest on their part, 
I'll give you an example. Race card came in from a young man. He's always asked, he has a big Afro, um, he's African American and white, he's mixed race, um, but he reads black. If you looked at him, you, you wouldn't see his dad, who's Austrian, you would see his mother's lineage. And, um, and people always ask him, so could you rap for us? In fact, those were six words, so could you rap for us? He plays classical music, his mom's a diplomat, his dad is a historian, he, he kind of likes rap, but it would be, he just said, I'm the last person who would rap. But people ask him that all the time. Now, he has a couple different ways he can respond. It's like, why are you asking me that question and shut down the conversation? Or, well, why would you ask me that? But then even when you, when you ask that question, there's a couple ways that you can ask that question, right? So, well, why would you ask me? Or why would you ask me that? I mean, there, you can go a lot of different ways with that. But if you want to keep dialogue going, you have to figure out, perhaps, if you're open to this, how to keep that dialogue going. So for me, I try to use simple questions. Um, what did you mean by that? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, which is a surefire answer to anything. Because then you, you put it back in their court and you ask them to explain themselves. And it's an opportunity for you to learn a little about, the, about them or for them to learn a little bit about that moment. Or maybe I need to think twice about this. Um, if someone asks, where are you from? I realized through this project that that, is, that hits a lot of people the wrong way. And that's a, you know, I, that's my standard opening when I get into a cab. So, where are you from? Let me, what is your, you know, when I, did, I now, I know, no, when I ask people that, that some people hear, you're not from here. It's basically an accusatory finger saying, you're other, you're part of that other category. So I think about that now as I ask the question, but I also think about the person who's asking that question, not necessarily trying to be boneheaded or racist or insensitive, but it's perhaps an expression of curiosity. So... As a human, I think about that. As a journalist, when things happen, I go to the inbox because the inbox is often a reflection of what happens in the world. So when a little boy sings the national anthem and I can hear in the crowd at the moment that there's something that sounds like it's not supportive, and I think, ooh, did I just, I think I'm going to, and the inbox reflects it right away on both sides. Heartbreak for the child, but also why is that child singing my anthem? You know, and, and you get sort of all sides of it. So the inbox has been this really interesting Rorschach test. When Trayvon Martin was killed long before it became a national story, I saw it in the inbox. And in fact, was calling one of our top producers at NPR saying, there's something happening in Stanford, Florida. We need to get on this. Because remember, it was weeks before it became a national story. But I started to see. And when the verdict came in, I remember I was in Minnesota, actually, surrounded by the long old people. Um, and I went to the inbox right away because I thought this is going to be a really, really interesting day. When the president went to, on that Friday afternoon, went to the podium and spoke about Trayvon Martin, I stopped where I was doing and I went to the inbox right away because I wanted to, to get an ear on that Explain what the inbox is. There may be some people here who don't know. The, the um, submissions primarily come in via um, the website. So if you go to the website and you scroll all the way down or I think right at the top, you can make your race card. You can click on that. And so that's the, we have a database where we keep, um, actually goes to two databases for redundancy for, to protect it. And, um, and then a lot of people submit via Twitter. So by the inbox, I'm using that sort of broadly to mean the database where the submissions come in. And then I go to, um, I brought you two days worth of cards. I get thousands of cards. They still come in. Sometimes people, he didn't have a race card, so he made one. Um, they still come in 
via the mail. We partnered with the University of Michigan, so the University of Michigan gets its own branded cards. <laughs> the University of Oregon has their own branded cards also. Um, so I'll go to the inbox also. Yes. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Juanette Mendes. I'm a first year MPP student here. Um, I know from my experiences here at the Kennedy School, um, but more than that, my experiences working in education, that having these conversations can be very difficult and tricky, not just for students, but also for administrators, for teachers. I'm curious to know if you are currently developing developing any resources or toolkits for educators. I know you mentioned you're working with some universities, or um, is that even something that you see on the horizon for this project? I definitely do. We've partnered with a series of um, universities. This, this, this started in the third floor of my house, and I had no idea what this would would become. In the last year, we've partnered uh, with a half a dozen schools and have worked with them formally to distribute cards all around campus, but also to develop programming on campus. So it's used in classes. They did a, a, a practicum in the law school at the University of Michigan. We've done theater events in Michigan and Oregon um, and a few other places. And what I hope to develop is something called a race card in a box because we receive so many inquiries now from institutions that want to use the race card project. Schools are often using it in classrooms. And I can send them cards, but what we have is a, we have a few high school um, teachers and professors around the country that are sort of testing curricula that they, then they can share with us. And in, in the box, you will get the cards, you'll figure out how you can use the race card project to do something as simple as just distributing the cards and having a conversation or asking students to dip into the race card project box and imagine this person's life outside the four corners of the card and actually try to research that. Um, so I'm developing that for high school, for uh, college, and then also for institutions. The, the Army is using the race card project, we discovered, and, um, and they wanted a little bit more direction on how to use that. So I realized that I could send them you know, thousands of cards. And I, I hope in the end um, that, that this is the kind of thing that will be, again, not me telling people how to use it, but based on how other people are using it, kind of like best practices that I can share. Other questions? Well, let me open it up to uh, everybody. Yes. Um, not that often. If you put the word prison, I guess, up there, I'm not sure what... Um, and I think there's a reason for that, that people who are incarcerated do not have open access to the internet. However, I've used the race card project. I've been invited to actually go, usually in women's prisons. I haven't been in men's prisons yet. And the, um, the stories are, are, are fascinating and, and really interesting and very deep. So I, I think it's underrepresented because the population that's directly affected doesn't have access to the inbox. The families, mothers. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, people who, who are indirectly affected um, I see some of those stories, but 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 not not a lot. Not. I'm just curious how you kind of go about curating what you receive. Like, because I'm assuming, I'm assuming you receive some pretty abrasive things, mm -hmm. and then how you feel about sharing that. Like, what are you perpetuating, or do you feel like just having a conversation <coughs> is and just getting whatever you're about? I'm just like curious about yourself. You know, I I do try to curate it, and <coughs> some of what comes in the inbox is really ugly, and some of what that comes to me personally. Is very ugly. I mean, we have, you know, my, we have cameras around our house, not just because of it's part of the security system, but I'm really glad they're there right now because of the crazy stuff that lands in the, um, in the inbox sometimes. 
there are things that I put on the wall that I, I don't know that I would have put on the air, you know, at ATC. But again, because I'm trying to create a space to really have an honest conversation, I will I will include some of that stuff. I don't include it if it is um, threatening. If um, the language is goes beyond prickly to derogatory, but I hold on to it. It's part of the it's part of the database, and I am in dialogue with people often that you know are 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 not conversations that I would probably have with them on the street. You know, and there's a the computer gives you a, a certain space, a certain safe space. But what happens is often people at the end of even the most prickly conversations thank you for listening to me. I mean, so often one of the reasons they're so hot in their uh, opinion is because no one listens to me, that they're usually shut out of the conversation. And there's one fellow who sent in six words, and I had some really difficult conversations with him, you know, um, online. And then he became one of the for there was a period of time where you could track his post in the in the in the conversation post. But he was on the site every day, and I did one of those NPR at sea. There you can cruise and you can go on cruises and listen to people from NPR do lectures. This is a thing, um, and, and I actually did one of them with my family, and uh, and I was not on the website because when you're cruising in the South China Sea, it's really hard to update the website. So the website hadn't been updated in about three days. And he was blowing up the inbox. Is Michelle okay? The website hasn't updated in three days. So, you know, he, he found a space to have, to, like, he could participate in the conversation, mm -hmm. and it totally changed the, the temperature. He doesn't visit every day, but he, he lurks a lot. Um, and so I, I do try to, um, to reach out people and I you know and I keep this also because we haven't talked about this but the archive I, I see this as an archive I mean this is an archive of attitudes and experiences about race and a really interesting moment in American history and so part of what I'm trying to do as I imagine this is the curriculum is part of that the website is part of that but in the long run I don't know if I'll do this forever but I hope that it lives forever someplace so I'm actively trying to find the right home for it into perpetuity because all the cards that come in, of the cards that come in, between 75 and 80% of them come in with contact information. And those numbers are low only because I didn't collect the contact information. Are you supported by NPR in this financially? Mm -hmm. who, who does the money come from? Are we looking at the money? <laughs> <laughs> are you a nonprofit? How do you sort of frame this? Um, I am. Can people help you? Yes, people can help. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they can. Um, and, 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 and this is not, I mean, and, and this is something I did outside of NPR. And so um, it, is, it is, the radio piece is, is on NPR, but this is something that is grown beyond traditional journalism. Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, I have to, you know, the, the radio piece will continue to live on NPR, but as an entity, it's sort of a little bit different than what you normally do, you know, as a journalist, and yet I feel like I have to, to keep it alive. So I have to decide if it's going to be a nonprofit or if it's going to be an, um, an LLC, and there's all kinds of tax implications and complications around that. Yes, sir. Michelle, thank you. You're I'm welcome. Alistair. Uh, I'm at the medical school in here at the Kennedy School of Engineering. I want to connect and then build off of Juana's point, um, which is kind of driving towards where we're going kind of with 
follow this. And what I think about is something that Jerry fantastic job with, which is this this um, this I believe series, mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially just a compendium of you know stories, personal essays um, from folks who are you know, normal average Joes like me, all the way up to Bill Gates, um, and they're motivational, inspirational, mm -hmm. sometimes heartbreaking, but all very real. Right? Do you see? Kind of us moving in that direction here at the end of this, and maybe uh, a compilation of these uh, these stories and, and, and a publication of that sort mm -hmm. on top of curriculum and on top of kind of other other things. I, I would I I you can assume that it will be a book. I you know, I'm already working on that, and it it's a it's a natural book project, and, and I love this I believe also, which is produced by Jay Allison, mm -hmm. in you know near Woods Hole in, in Massachusetts, actually in Woods Hole is right where he's located in Massachusetts. Um, so this is sort of the home turf for that uh, that wonderful project, and and um, and I'm inspired in some ways by the work he does, by the work Dave Isay does at StoryCorps, mm -hmm. um, by the work that Ira Glass does in taking a sort of simple story and looking at it at lots of different angles. So I, I hope that um, that in the short run that this will be the website will continue to be accessible, but that there'll be a publication so that people can access it, and so that I can also follow the stories. I mean, some of the stories that have come in, I'll give you an example, the six words were, the Mississippi secret, not an accidental drowning. Yeah, that was my response. My eyebrows, oh. He gave the year and the city, Gulfport, Mississippi, and I started doing initial research, and it didn't take me long to find out that yes, there were three students who drowned, on that specific day in August in 1974 in Gulfport, Mississippi. Um, there were, it's an area where there's an undertow, but on that day there were boats that were circling these three black students, and they got caught in an undertow, and um, they were pulled out of the water and they drowned. They were part of a church group that was touring the south. They were from, well, elsewhere, they are from Atlanta, and they were in Waveland, Gulfport, which is a two communities right next to each other. And uh, the coroner very quickly ruled that it was an accidental drowning. Uh, I have the names <coughs> of the coroner, I have the names of the four people who pulled the three students out of the water. Um, I have the name of the funeral director who ultimately took their bodies because when they died, they couldn't find a funeral home that would take their bodies in Gulfport because they were three black students. In 74? In 74. And I found the nun who accompanied them on that trip. And on the night of Barack Obama's first election, when everyone went to celebrate, she sat by herself. Because those students were 13 and 14 when they died in 1974, and they would have been the same age of this president. And she wondered what that day would have been like for them. And that uh, a story I... What have you done with it? I mean, that's what I'm researching right now. Is oh, trying you're to do find a piece on it? probably, and it would in, in a, a publication. It would certainly be in the book. But we're that trying fellow to in Jackson, Mississippi, Jerry uh, Mitchell. <coughs> yeah, we 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 we, we, we talk a lot. And yeah, uh, we meet in the workplace, but we live apart. Mm -hmm. Do you get much uh, uh, of an impression about this in, in your correspondence? It's what Dr. King talked about on Sunday, that the 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most integrated hour in America, that people worship in different places, but beyond that, people 
maybe work together, their kids go to school together, but they often retreat to concentric circles, you know, that are, um, that are not as diverse as the <coughs> public spheres that we created through all kinds of social engineering. We've ensured that they are diverse, but less diverse are the neighborhoods we live in, um, the sort of friendships that we develop. It's, a, it's an interesting point to bring up with young people in the room. Because for many of you, the, the diversity that you experience on a college campus, this is, you, you may never again experience a more diverse environment than you're in right now. And one of the things that I do notice in the inbox is from people who are at that moment where it's happening, where they, they've gone to school, they've got a good job, they're making decisions about where their kids go to school, they're making decisions about where they live, and they always walk the walk and talk the talk in terms of the importance of diversity. But do I want to live here or do I want to live there? Do I want my child to go to this school or do I want my child to go to that school? Um, I'm having a dinner party and we're really good friends at work, but why is it that I've never been to their table? They, I, I have no idea what the inside of their house looks like, but oh, wait a minute, they have no idea what the inside of my house looks like either. And somehow, um, that happens to, to many of us. And, and actually, you know, Eric Holder talked about that in his Nation of Cowards speech, which I went back, I was doing research, went back and read the other day. And that was the piece of it that no one really focused on. Everyone focused on the Nation of Cowards, but if you look at the totality of what he said in that moment, he was saying that Americans, black, white, every color in between does the same thing. That on a Saturday night, how diverse, what do you do on a Saturday night for fun? You know, and the, the places where that is most likely to happen is in working class America. Um, where, you know, if you, you go to a bowling alley on a Saturday night, which, and I, I grew up with parents who bowled, and I used to be able to kind of sort of bowl. Um, but you see that in areas uh, where people work a factory floor, that's less likely to happen um, than in, you know, companies actually played a role in in making that happen through leagues, through you know things like that, but that is that is the, a really hard, you know, a really hard nut to crack is what, and you can't legislate that, right? It's hard to do that with social engineering. You can't tell people on a Saturday night your dinner party has to be inclusive. <coughs> you know, your your child's birthday party has to be um, inclusive. Your knitting circle, or you know, when you get together for canasta, um, there has to be. You know, uh, a diversity of, um, and, and and maybe not just in color. You know, diversity of thought, gender diversity. I mean, we 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 pull ourselves into little tight circles in all kinds of ways in our personal space. Michelle, it's been wonderful to have you. I'm sorry we're out of we're out of time. Thank you very much. This is really important. <laughs>